0: Everybody wanted to look fly. People were wearing Adidas and gazelles and Kangals. Everybody had a watch on. You know, I think watches back in those days were super important. What kind of watch you were wearing, you know, said what kind of person you were.
1: Hey, everybody. I'm your host, Stephen Pulverin, and this is Hodinkee Radio. It's 80s week here at Hodinkee, which means that all week we're going to be bringing you stories, videos, and, yes, podcasts related to watch culture in the 1980s, which maybe is the most underappreciated decade in watches. First up, we've got a conversation with our own Logan Baker about one of the weirdest watches in the 1980s, the Tissot Rock Watch. It's exactly what it sounds like. It's a watch made out of a piece of rock, but it's a whole lot more than that. And Logan gets into why this tiny little strange piece of horology tells us a ton about what was going on in Switzerland and the watch world during this important decade. After that, our senior vice president of content, Nick Marino, makes his first Hodinkee Radio appearance, interviewing photographer Jeanette Beckman. Beckman photographed the 70s British punk scene and then moved to New York and spent most of the 80s shooting the early hip-hop scene, including a ton of household names like LL Cool J, Salt-N-Pepa, Flava Flav, and a ton more. She focused on documenting the culture, style, and fashion of the era, and kind of unbeknownst to her at the time, that included watches, and Nick really opens her eyes to the ways in which her photographs document horological culture of 1980s hip-hop in addition to a ton of other things. It's also worth noting that both of these are sort of previews or behind-the-scenes looks at stories coming out later this week. So if you enjoy these conversations and interviews, uh, be sure to tune back in later this week uh, at hodinki.com, and you'll be able to get an even more detailed look. We'll also update the show notes with those links uh, as they become available. So without further ado, it's 80s week. Let's do this. Hey man, welcome to the show. Good to have you.
2: Uh thanks, man. Uh excited to be here. Uh first
1: first appearance on H radio. <laughs> Is it really? Uh yeah, yeah, I believe that so. That blows my mind, man. <laughs> well, it took it took eighties week for us to make this happen. Uh and not to blow your spot up too much, but you you were not born in the eighties, right? Uh, I was not
2: yeah I'm a I'm a 90s baby so okay. uh, you know I didn't get uh, get the first-hand experience of some of you, you uh, <laughs> old guys on the team
1: <laughs> I I, I uh, slid in there I made it by like a few months so I get to say I was born in the 80s but like ba- barely like I'm really a 90s kid so you know you're you're in good company here
2: there we go but this you know this is your week this is 80s week just for you <laughs> this is 80s
1: week uh and and the reason you're on the show this week is, you know, we're doing a whole bunch of 80s themed stories this week all across the site. Um, And one story you've been researching and that you wrote uh, stood out to me as just like one of the quirkiest and most fun and idiosyncratic 80s stories imaginable in watches. Uh, And so although the full story I'll run later this week, I thought it'd be fun to give people a little bit of a little bit of a preview this morning. What do you what do you think? Yeah, absolutely. Let's do it. All right. So the watch we're going to talk about uh, has a goofy name, and then when you start digging into it, you realize it's actually like even stranger than you think. Uh, and it's the Tissot Rock Watch. Can you can you just tell us kind of like at a high level what this thing is? Uh, well, it's it's a it's a rock, you know. I mean, it's uh, <laughs> okay. Kind of, I kind of set myself up for that, didn't I?
2: It's it's a chunk of uh, granite um, that Tissot in the mid '80s um, came out with. Um, you know, it's a single piece of granite that they milled on both sides Uh, there's a quartz movement around back that's protected with a a steel case back that's screwed in and then there's the the dial it's kind of a with a stepped bezel inside uh, with sapphire crystal on top Um, but it's just this tiny little charming watch Um, you know they produced three sizes uh, 22 32 and 29 I think so there's these three kind of main sizes but it's just this tiny little charming kind of funky watch that is uh you know just 100% of the 80s you know I can't really imagine it existing at any other point
1: yeah it's i mean first of all the fact that it's small is something i didn't expect like i'd seen pictures of them before but until you know you and i had talked about this a little bit like i, I didn't realize how tiny they are
2: yeah, they're they're really quite small, and I think that's part of the charm. Cause, you know, um, I mean, this is this is the first watch made of natural stone. And you know, if you if it came out today, it'd probably be seen as like a gimmick. You know, you'd probably see it on Kickstarter or something like that. But it, it would be like this forty millimeter kind of piece of rock. You know, it would feel like weird on the wrist. But you know, I think the the small size kind of works to uh, to part of its in, in in its favor. You know,
1: it's it's yeah. more that
2: way. It's kind of of
1: its time. Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, you know, and and you said it's granite. Is there is there a reason why that was the rock they chose? Like there there's many many choices, but like the the main ones are granite, right?
2: Uh, yeah, the they they made a couple different um, they used a couple different stones, but the first one they used was granite to do uh, to go all in on Swiss made. So the granite that they used on most of the rock watches is sourced from the Swiss Alps. Oh, that's um, cool. Which kind of makes it, you know, a very holistic Switzerland creation bringing together, you know, one of their main attractions in um, the Alps and one of their main exports in um, watchmaking. Uh, and even the the hands on the, the dial are red and yellow. And uh, they chose those colors because it's the same colors as the the trail markers in the Alps.
1: Oh, so like that's you're, really you're charming, actually. Walking. I really like that.
2: Yeah. So it's you know i mean there's there's some interesting it's it's pretty simple when you look at it you know it's it's, it's a rock there's not a lot of like right. flourishes flourish there or anything but you know they, they made some choices that i think are, are interesting and milled on the steel case back it says a uh, genuine rock watch you want to make sure you're getting the real thing <laughs> <laughs> I,
1: I i love the idea that there's like a whole bunch of not genuine rock watches out there that like somebody made a bunch of fake ones that are made of like i don't know like concrete or something just with like some brown color in it and they made it it's like a fake rock watch
2: yeah yeah you know I wouldn't be surprised if at one point you know there there were competitors that popped up um yeah. I haven't really seen too many but like I said you know I, I I think for its time this is really kind of a fresh idea but today it would be kind of looked at like in 2021 you know we wouldn't be talking about it on a episode of Hodinky Radio because yeah. it's of, it's specifically of the 80s like that it, it kind of makes it interesting and you know, kind of transitioning from there, I think what's really underrated about the Rock Watch is that it, it kind of helped rebirth Tissot in kind of the, yeah. the international imagination. Because you know, as I'm sure everyone listening to this is aware, the the late 70s, early 80s weren't really a great time for Swiss watchmaking. You know, I mean, um, there was a lot of consolidation going on, and Tissot was was part of that. And by the time the Rock Watch came out in 1985 um Tissot hadn't what wasn't in the US market. They hadn't been in the US market for about a decade. And so they oh they actually God. used the rockwatch as an opportunity to uh, re-enter the the United States. Their yeah. their first test markets were in Chicago, Boston, DC, which is kind of a similar path that uh Swatch, the Swatch watch chose yeah. in 1983 when it uh, tested in Texas before it launched internationally. So before you you know even um, the rest of Switzerland had a chance to see the the Rockwatch, you know, people in Chicago, retailers in Chicago, Boston, and DC all had a chance to kind of see it. And Mm. I read that, you know, Switzerland actually sent like TV crews to cover the launch of the Rockwatch in the US. So there was like this demand forming internationally for it, but only people in these, these test markets in the US could get it in Mm. 1984.
1: Yeah, it's interesting that you draw the comparison with Swatch, right? Like, I think people don't realize, you know, in 1983, like the idea of a Swiss watch was kind of dying. Like, you know, like the the most advanced watches were coming from Japan, and Swatch, as we've said many times on the show, on the website, kind of all over the place. Like, Swatch in many ways saved the Swiss watch industry, and this comes right on the heels of that, and it also comes from a lot of the same people, right? Like. Dr. Tomke, Ernst Tomke, who our, our own Joe Thompson has written extensively about, uh, and we'll, we'll put some links in in the show notes so people can check those stories out, but uh, Tomke was kind of like the mastermind behind this, right?
2: Yeah, he was kind of part of a team, um, you know, Tomke, who was, I believe, his position at that time was CEO of Edda, but kind of in okay. the consolidation of SSIH and ASUAG, Um, You know, he he joined the board of directors Um, and I don't believe in 84, the SMH group had been officially named yet, but he would become eventually the first CEO of the SMH group. Um, But he's he's a key player. Um, Elmar Mock, um, Jacques Mm -hmm. Mueller, two veterans of Swatch in 1983, were all kind of part of the the key development. And um, one of my favorite bits about the, the Rockwatch's development is that it came from a night of of drinking, you know, like Dr. Yeah. Compton and a couple other, you know, Swiss executives were just like hanging out drinking and, you know, talking about different things. And, and it kind of just came up like organically, like what if we made a watch of stone? And so they just kind of took that idea and ran with it. I'll actually, I'll, I'll read you this quote from um, a book on Tissot that was published in 2003 that I just, I find really charming. Um, yeah, please do. Uh, so here, here's the quote to relaunch the brand we needed a new product during an evening in which we drank a great deal we and our colleagues decided to make a watch in stone Ernst Tonky's blue eyes are still laughing at the thought when I proposed to the people at Tissot that we would sell this stone watch they said it must surely be a joke if you insist we'll try and sell 3,000 I said at least 10,000 otherwise I'll give it to another brand they must have thought I was completely mad uh, it's just I can just I mean, I don't know, uh, Stephen, you know you've been you've been going to Switzerland off and on for years. Can you imagine like a bunch of Swiss watch industry executives sitting around going back and forth on this idea? like
1: <laughs> kind of like I mean it's funny. like it makes it makes sense to me, but as something from a different time. Like this mm-hmm. was such a different world than the world we inhabit now. And I, I think I don't know, one of the things that stands out to me from from the way you kind of describe this process and the product itself, and knowing a little bit about the the history of the industry at this time is like, the, the 80s get a bad rap for when watches were like, boring and bad and like, whatever. And that might be true from a mechanical standpoint. Like, I think if you want to look at watchmaking as like a technical art, the 80s probably aren't great. Uh, but like, to me, the 80s feel like the generation when watches got fun, you know, like, in the 60s and 70s, it was all like, it was kind of serious. It was like tool watches and it was about ultra thin dress watches and complications and like innovation and all of this. And then like the quartz crisis hit and everybody had to rethink and we got Swatch and we got the Rock Watch, and we got like these early kind of like what would now be Swatch group creations were were products of people had to find something new and so they got creative and they had a little fun with it and they went out and got drunk with their friends and were like let's make a watch out of that mountain over there and like that's a cool thing and i i honestly i think the industry could do with a bit more of that just like flat out fun like don't take itself so damn seriously just have a good time with it
2: yeah no absolutely that's that's a really good point point. and you know um even after swatch came out in 1983. Uh, the Swiss watch industry wasn't, you know, we, we, we like to say that Swatch was the only thing that helped save the Swiss watch industry, but you know, it was just kind of it was the first step in building it yeah. back. You know, True. Swiss watch exports in '83, '84 were still at some of the, the lowest levels since uh, World War II. Um, yeah. But then, you know, Tissot came out with the uh, the Rock Watch, which gave them kind of uh, a better footing internationally. You know, they launched in the U.S. They launched in Hong Kong uh, and they started building a distribution network worldwide. And, you know, today Tissot is, you know, one of the the Swiss watch industry's biggest players, you know, they produce more watches than nearly any other Swiss brand. And I I think it would have been really interesting if in like that quote that I read, if Tissot hadn't taken it and, you know, another one of those early um, SMH group brands had, you know, so like if, in Tiso's place today, we saw, you know, Rotto or Mito or, you know, one of those original um, SMH brands. It, it would just be interesting how kind of things, things developed from the Rockwatch's success. Yeah. Um,
1: That's a really good point. That's a really, really good point is, is things were so volatile at this period that, that like this, the impact of this thing, it's hard to know, but like it, it probably is significant, you know, and it's, it's, it might seem like a novelty to us now. And, and I know you mentioned that earlier. You know, if somebody came out with this today, we might kind of laugh at it.
0: Mm-hmm. But,
1: uh, and and I did just a minute ago say that the 80s technically weren't the most impressive. But like, I also don't want to make it sound like I'm not taking this seriously or that this watch is like a funny curiosity and that's all. I mean, there were plenty of like technical problems that had to be solved. Like you can't just take a hunk of rock from the side of a mountain and put it in the same machine that you use to make steel or gold cases and make a watch case like rock is not granite is like not easy to work with on that scale and there's all kinds of problems that you have to solve and like these were creative talented watch folk you know working on this and it was it was like a really serious thing despite being fun right
2: yeah um you know Tissot and the smh group actually had to invest like i think uh seven million Swiss francs in, you know, acquiring the machines and, you know, the, the facilities to properly manufacture, um, to machine the, the granite out of, um, you know, the cases out of granite. Um, they didn't really have, you know, stonemasons on staff or anything like that, right. So they had to go out and acquire kind of those capabilities. And then, um, they even, you know, and, and, and in this time, um, you know, the industry was consolidating, people were losing jobs, but Tissot actually created 50 new jobs at its facility in uh, Le Lac, um, specifically to meet the Rockwatch's initial production goals. So before they'd even sold any, they kind of had placed this bet, this investment with, you know, millions of francs in creating the watches, 20 millions was francs into marketing the Rockwatch and 50 new jobs in, in Switzerland. Um, so, you know, they, they were kind of investing a lot into it. Um, and one other thing that I wanted to make sure we talked about is, you know, I think this, I think the Rock Watch really kind of influenced the trend we see today of these kind of unorthodox out of the box materials being injected yeah. into cases, rotors, case bands, um, dials, you know, I mean, we see, we kind of take for granted like meteorite dials today, but that totally. wasn't around in the sixties or seventies. I think the first meteorite dial was, uh, was a quorum. I might be wrong on that, but mm. you know, I think that was in the eighties, um, but you know, without the, the rock watch kind of and its popularity, I don't think we would be seeing the, you know, people adding uh, historical pieces to like rotors and, and whatnot, you know. So there's there's this kind of influence that you can track from um from the mid eighties to today. And again, you know, I mean people can feel kind of how they feel about those types of watches, but it's it's an important kind of part of our industry, you know, and I think uh, yeah. it's interesting and the more kind of fun things the industry does the better like you were like you were saying
1: yeah no i totally i totally agree with you and I, I i do think that last point you made that this is one of the first non like steel or gold or platinum watches out there like it's it's really that that's a thing that sounds crazy to us today when we have watches made of everything from like ceramic to literally made of like cheese right like we've seen a cheese cased <laughs> watch you know it's it's been that full gambit, right and this was this was first or, or early, you know, if not first, it was early and influential. Um, and, you know, you you and I have chatted about this a bit offline, but like, you know, in the years immediately after the Rockwatch, we saw things like Mother of Pearl, we saw things like wood, we saw things like ceramics and, you know, some of the ceramic stuff is down to the technology became available. But also, I, I would be shocked if, you know, when the folks at Omega made a decision to invest in ceramics they didn't have a conversation with one of their colleagues who worked on the rock watch to say like, how, how do we do this? And like, how do you make this successful? And how do you convince people? So again, like it's kind it is fun and it is a little bit silly and goofy. Uh, but these like tiny stone watches, I, I really think have an outsized impact. At least you've, you've at least convinced me. I don't know if we've convinced our listeners, but you've convinced me that this, this matters, you know?
2: No, I think it, it, it absolutely does. And, you know, we spend a lot of time at, um, you know, at Hodinkee, but not, not even at Hodinkee. I think, you know, watch enthusiasts in general are so focused on the idea of, you know, vintage and the, these watches from the 50s and 60s. And, you know, they're wonderful. I, you know, I can't get it. I can't get enough of learning about vintage watches. And I, I chatter with, uh, I bother Brandon and Sayori and Rich all the time about, like, you know, what we have coming coming into the, the Hodinkee shop. You, you but, and me both, uh, man. <laughs> there's this really interesting period where there was just a lot of innovation, not just in you know, traditional horology or you know material sciences, but in how um, the watch Institute approached marketing and communications. And you know, I'm not going to say that the the rock watch is the end-all be-all when it comes to that, but like you said, there's this is a small kind of silly, fun, little charming, piece of granite really kind of has uh, an outsized influence on uh, what we do today.
1: Yeah. All right. Last last question for you. I know you picked one of these up on eBay as you were researching this story. Uh, have you been Have you been wearing the rock watch? Have you been rocking the rock watch a lot lately?
2: <laughs> a little bit. You know, um, it's pretty small. It's definitely the smallest watch <laughs> I've ever owned. But yeah. uh, you know, I wear and it's it's interesting. I get into this a little bit on my in my article, but you know, on the wrist, you kind of, you don't forget that you're wearing it, but I don't like fiddle with it. Like I, I like to fiddle with my watches, whether, you know, I wear a bunch of dive watches and I'll fiddle with the bezel. If I'm wearing a chronograph, I'm pressing the pushers all day, every day. I don't find myself playing around with the rock watch as much because it's just this smooth, perfect circle, but it's not like I, I forget that it's there either. Like you might a ultra thin vintage watch. So it's kind of, okay. it was a different wearing experience than I anticipated or really kind of, than anything I've felt before um but it's a you know I recommend you you can find them on you know the traditional kind of online marketplaces for you know 100 200 bucks um even less if you kind of dig around a bit um so I, you know I recommend people find one that kind of stri- strikes their their fancy oh and I, I should mention that every rock watch is unique because the the veins of the stone um you know that they're cutting from make each watch ah you know, yeah more- yeah so if you find one, you know you look around a little bit and you find one that speaks to you, uh, go for it. You know I think it's a it's a cool, fun piece of history that um, is pretty affordable.
1: Amazing. Well, I now know exactly what I will be doing uh, when we turn the microphones off. Uh, my credit card does not thank you, uh, but my wrist probably does. So uh, thanks for joining us, man. This was fun. I can't believe this was the first time we had you on the show, but uh, we'll we'll have to make it make it a more frequent thing and. Uh, people should look forward to your full detailed report of this, uh, later in the week and we'll, we'll update the show notes once that goes live. So, uh, people, people can find it. Sounds great. Awesome. Thanks so much. Awesome. Cool. Thanks, man. Take care. Up next, we have Nick Marino talking to photographer Jeanette Beckman.
3: Hey, everybody. Nick here. Uh, Before I entered the world of watches, um, I spent about the first decade of my career as a music writer. And back then and still now, um, I loved hip hop in particular. It's the music that I grew up on as a, a kid in Florida. And as we were thinking about our 80s week coverage, we realized that a lot of watch culture came out of hip hop. that 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 moment in music history was really linked to that moment in watch history. And that a lot of what the artists were wearing back then holds up now as super emblematic of that decade. Actually, just as much as the music they were making. Um, It's fun, a lot of fun, to go back and listen to that music. But you get some of that same enjoyment just out of looking at the pictures. Uh, And what we have for you today is a conversation with someone who made a lot of the pictures that we think of when we think of 80s hip hop. Uh, Her name is Jeanette Beckman. She was born in London, but did most of um, her hip hop work in New York City. Uh, And she took a lot of super iconic images of rappers wearing watches. And it's a, it's a little unusual for a Hodenki radio to do something like this, but I think as you listen, you'll start to see the connections between hip hop culture and watch culture in the 1980s in a whole new way. Jeanette Beckman, welcome to Hodenki Radio.
0: Thank you for having me, it's very exciting.
3: Let's go back to the beginning. We're, we're here today to talk about um, this amazing portfolio of hip hop photography that you made from the 1980s. How are you in position to shoot all this stuff to begin with?
0: Well, that's the question. So uh, basically I was born in London and I grew up there and punk was happening and it was just all around. And I started photographing punk kids on the street. And then I started photographing bands and fans and everything. and. I was working for a weekly music magazine called Melody Maker, and shooting all these different bands for about five years. And in 1982, the New York City Rap Tour came to London and we had never seen rap before. We didn't know what it was. And you know, British punk is kind of dark and gloomy and all very negative energy in a way, although it was great. Bands like The Clash were really amazing. But um, so this New York City rap tour came to town and I went to photograph it for the for Melody Maker. So that day I saw MCs, DJs, graffiti artists, rappers, double Dutch girls, all on a stage together, all making this incredible art form, which I'd never seen before. And it really was a kind of... A, renaissance moment for me, if you will. And a couple of months later, I moved to New York. You know, then 1983, I find myself in New York and all of this stuff is happening on the streets. Kids are walking around with boom boxes, the trains are all covered in graffiti. It was so exciting. I just started going around to record labels trying to get work because I'd already by that time done a police album cover first police album cover and um, you know, I had all these punk bands. I thought I would get work from these big labels, but they were not keen on my work. They thought it was too gritty. And um, so eventually they gave me a job and there was, a, you know, it was a rap group and uh, they were called the Fearless Four. And i that was my first rap album cover. They started say, calling me up going, hey, you know, There's this group run DMC. Have you heard of them? No, never heard of them. 1984. You know, they'd give me this number from England. It turned out to be like Jam Master Jay's mom's house. (laughs) And I'd call up and go, hi. You know, I'm from England, blah, blah, blah. And I'd just go out to Hollis and start, you know, taking pictures. And that's kind of how I started to get into it.
3: You know, our interest in hip hop is, of course, through the lens of watches. But I see watches as sort of part of a larger style movement and part of what makes that era of hip hop still so much fun, so fun to look at, so fun to think about. Can you, the, can you describe the style that those artists were wearing? What did you notice about it then? And how did watches play into that style?
0: Well, I think, you know, watches are uh, like jewelry really, you know obviously functioning jewelry and you know back in the day everybody wanted to look fly everybody wanted to you know have bling they wanted to go you know i've got the chains and then i've got the watches and people were wearing adidas and gazelles and Kangals, and you know track suits and it, it there were all different types of styles to be honest and um People usually had watches on. In fact, everybody had a watch on, actually, when you think about it at the time. You know, I think watches back in those days were super important. What kind of watch you were wearing, you know, said what kind of person you were.
3: Let's go through these images that we pulled together. The first one is Two Live Crew from 1988. And it's interesting to hear you talk about coming out of the punk scene, because to me, Two Live Crew are one of the most punk rock hip-hop groups ever and I, I love that in this image Luke the leader of the of the group is wearing this gold Rolex day date, you know the, the, the president watch because it's 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 actually an establishment watch you know it's it's known for being kind of what diplomats would wear what a, what actual presidents would wear you know this is the watch that you wear if you're going to speak at the United Nations or try to make partner at the law firm. You know, it's a successful uh, buttoned up conservative Swiss dress watch being worn by a guy who at the time was one of the most, host, most notorious artists in any musical genre. I, I love that irony that he's playing with. Um, I love the way he owns that watch. And makes it his and sort of makes the case that he deserves it as much as anyone. You know, I, I don't want to read too much into these things, but there's there's a reason he's wearing that particular watch posing in front of the American flag. Um, can you can you go back to shooting these guys in eighty-eight? And am I am I crazy or does 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 two Live crew kind of connect with punk in the way that I'm seeing?
0: Fabulous. You're right. It's very punk. I mean it's Watches really, I guess, say who you are. I took that picture of them, and we decided to put them in front of an American flag because at the time, they were trying to ban records that had uh, suggestive lyrics in them from being sold. And there was this whole protest going on, and as you can see, they're wearing these T-shirts. And it's, I mean, even though it's a serious subject, they're still having fun with it. And we did have
3: a fun time on that shoot. Your LO Cool J photo shoot is significant for all kinds of reasons. Um, you know, we're interested, of course, in the watch. And he's wearing something called a Gruen Gold Nugget, at least as best we can tell. And this thing is amazing. It, it looks like someone sort of spray painted gold onto uh, some tin foil and then crumpled it all up made a watch bracelet out of it, and then attached it to a case. Um, It's an amazing piece, and a lot of rappers wore it back then. Of course, LL also has this three-finger gold ring with his name on it, this giant gold chain, which at that time was his signature. And then he's making the double LL sign uh, with his hands. Plus, this red bucket hat, you know, th- this is sort of quintessential LL to me. Uh, what was he like to shoot back in those days?
0: Uh, that is like the second photo shoot I'd done with LL because the first photo shoot I did for him was his first ever press shoot. And I think, you know, there's a picture of him. A lot of people know this picture. He's got a big boombox on his shoulder. So that was 1985, I believe. And this is a couple of years later, and it was actually for Melody Maker, one of these British music magazines, and it was a cover shot. And so I wanted to get some close-up pictures, and you know, they wanted color, and it had to be really bright. So I, you know, back in the day, we had these bright-colored seamlesses. And um, he obviously had got a bit famous since I'd taken that first press shot of him. So you know, he has a nice watch on. He's got a lot more jewelry on in this picture than he did in, when I photographed him in 1985. And he's got all his moves down. I mean, he's doing the LL sign. LL stands for ladies love, and everybody did love LL J.
3: So this EPMD shoot is super iconic. One of your, I think most famous shoots. Um, I love this whole session with them by the water uh, wearing these matching outfits with the bucket hats and there's serious watch action here. Um, we've got a Seiko Chrono, uh, and we've got a yellow Rolex Day-Date um, plus assorted rings, chains. Um, it's just kind of everything that you want from an 80s rap duo all in this one image. What was happening uh, on this day when you took their picture?
0: So I was shooting that for their album, Um, I think it's Unfinished or is it Strictly? I think it's Unfinished Business. So it was the third album cover I'd done for them. And that day it was kind of like a sort of October, November type of fall day, sun went down early. So they told me to meet them out in Babylon, Long Island. But by this water, they gave me the street address. I drove out there. I found it was supposed to meet at noon. So I'm out there with my assistant, and it's in the middle of nowhere. It's by the water, it's by the ocean. And, you know, still bearing in mind no phones, no cell phones, no nothing. And uh, they didn't turn up at noon, no surprise, hip hop, always late. Then I'm <laughs> waiting, and the sun's starting to go down. So around three o'clock, we drove to a phone box, remember those things? So you put put the quarter in, and I call the manager, and he's like, oh, yeah, y'all, they're getting the, the rims shined on their cars in the Bronx. And I'm like, holy crap, because the sun's going to be down in literally like an hour or so, and I hope they hurry up. So I go back to the spot, and about 15 minutes, you know, before the sun was about to go down, I hear this, roar the V8 engine. And to me, there's something about V8 engines and watches it's sort of connected or motorcycles. I don't know why. Anyway, they come down and they got, you know, they come down there. I think one of them had a Mercedes. I think the other one had an IROC. We better hurry up. We've got 15 minutes. So they got out and they just sat exactly where they're sitting. And they were like, what do you want us to do? And I'm like, you look great like that. It's interesting. You can see the watch really well which I didn't really think about. Well, more than the watch, I will say, what was extraordinary to me was what they were wearing because it was a style that, like the bucket hat and this kind of flowing, kind of pyjama-y looking things. i would never seen a rapper wear anything like this before, but I just thought, well, this is really cool. There must be, you know. They've got it. They know how to flaunt this stuff. And they obviously have these outfits made and matching outfits. And they looked amazing. And this is actually one of my most famous photos.
3: Should we look at Run DMC? Yeah.
0: Let's look at Run DMC.
3: All right. So Run DMC, massively famous rap group, massively famous watches. Uh, we've got a Rolex Date Just and a swatch here. Not to mention a couple of fedoras, some chains, um, a B-Boy stance all shot in this amazing, timeless black and white. Can you take us back to shooting those guys?
0: So um, Jam Master Jay, I was doing a story for um, Spin, I think. It was about you know rock stars at home and I went to photograph Jam Master Jay in his home. And yeah, he had this giant, not only was he wearing a swatch, but he had this giant swatch thing, I mean, it was, about double the height of him hanging off the wall and it's it's really cool looking that particular picture of Randy and C I had photographed them before of course before they got famous in 1984 on the street where they lived and that was a really cool photo shoot and this was a couple of let's see 88 so yeah that's four years later and, you know, they really had their look down. They've got the hats, they've got the glasses, you know, they just they just look good. And we were just trying to get a tight shot. I mean, that's always a challenging thing. I don't really like posing people, but when you're trying to do a group shot like this, everybody has to be close together and they all have to be looking in the camera. And that's somehow not always so easy. So. There's a contact sheet for that you can kind of see the development of you know one person's looking over there and you know eventually you get everybody focused and I was working with film back in the day and that particular camera that I used to use the Hasselblad only has 12 shots on a roll so you didn't shoot that many rolls it wasn't like these days you would do 100 shots just to get one you know we would do maybe 30 or so So uh, it was more challenging, but there they are.
3: I'm really happy to see Heavy D in the mix here. He's an artist that I loved as a kid and who I think is sort of forgotten today. Um, But in this image, he's wearing this sort of beautiful, regal, purple jacket, a Rolex and a pinky ring with these smoky glasses. He looks actually kind of sweet. Uh, for, For people who don't remember him or maybe never heard about him to begin with. Who was he and what was he like?
0: Heavy D and the boys, yeah, they had a a special place. And I mean, for me personally, they remade Now That We Found Love, remember? And that was one of my favorite jams. I mean, I thought what they did was spectacular. I was really, that was just on my foot. Actually, it still is on my playlist. I think I shot that for my first hip hop book that I was doing in 1991. It was called Rap, Portraits and Lyrics of a Generation of Black Rockers.
3: This is 89, and I guess maybe that's a question. Right. You you started shooting hip hop culture in the early 80s.
0: Well, 82 was my first ever hip hop shoot.
3: Yeah, and so now here we are at the late 80s. How did the the style, forget the music for a moment, how the style evolve from 82 to 89?
0: To you know, I think in 82 and 83, or when I shot that Fearless 4 cover, for instance, they're all in matching red leather head to toe. And they've got jerry curls, and, you know, they've got little chains, and it's, it's a look, and it was really an amazing look, and it's a great, I mean, that's just a great moment that really, I think that was 83, it really personifies exactly, you know, there's a lot of leather going on and stuff. And then, you know, as the 80s went on, people like Run DMC, as I say, kind of made streetwear more popular. And, you know, guys like Gangstar, for instance, you know, they were, you know, they'd be in Timberlands and, you know, baggy jeans and some kind of loose jacket. It was a completely different look. So I think... That's the main thing. And of course, you know, as artists got more popular, the gold got bigger, usually.
3: We have just a few images left. Um, let's do Flavor Flav.
0: Flavor Flav, of course,
3: famous for the clock, but this is a stopwatch. What's going on in this image?
0: This image was shot. I shot this also for a British magazine and I was doing uh, a story about Public Enemy. They came to my studio and um, it was right around fight the power time and everything. And this was before he got the clock. This was probably Flavor Flay's first clock, which was a stopwatch. I mean, I'm really glad I have that image because, you know, as we all know, he soon had his own TV show and was wearing these clocks that were like bigger than he was and then giving them out to girls and all sorts of things. So. You know, this was the start of it. It started small and those things for what? Like five bucks or something. I had one too. Everybody was wearing. Them. We would just wear them with, you know, the jewelry you had around your neck. Like I often had a lot of chains and things. not big gold chains, but chains. And then you'd have a stopwatch.
3: What kind of character was he in 1987?
0: He was hilarious. And I'll just say he was hilarious. I mean, it was funny because people said to me, you know, public enemy coming to your studio it might be difficult because you know fight the power and there was all this you know racism going on and the spiky movies and everything it might be a difficult shoot but i always loved public enemy i mean i still do i think chuck d you know chuck d for president as far as i'm concerned but they were delightful and Chuck D was so smart and thoughtful and, you know, Flavor was there playing the clown and being funny as usual, but really sweet. He was just always fooling around.
3: Take me back to this day in 1986 with salt and pepper on the Lower East Side. It, it seems like a really candid moment. They, they look like they've just busted out of a bodega with a couple of juice bottles. Uh, and then there's a random kid walking through the frame. What, what's happening here?
0: Once again, it was for a magazine in England, we'd somehow heard about these two girls that were, I don't know, I guess they were rhyming, but they did not have a record deal. So I was living on Avenue B and 8th Street, which was on the Lower East Side, right on Tompkins Square at the time. So I was like, okay, it's hot summer's day, really like New York, steamy, hot day. And I said to them, just meet me at my apartment, we'll just walk around in the neighborhood. The Lower East Side, you know, back in the day, was not really gentrified. In fact, forget the really, it was just not gentrified. So I knew that there were a few murals in the neighborhood and I just thought it might be nice to get them, you know, standing in front of a mural or something. So we just spent the afternoon sort of walking around and I'm going, what do you think of this spot? they go, oh, this is cool. And they kind of strike a pose in front of some Got a picture of them in front of this fabulous mural, this lady dancing outside of the local key food supermarket on Avenue C. maybe it's D. I don't even know. No, I, mean, I
3: know that supermarket D. on Avenue C. Yeah,
0: right. That's the one. So you know, and it was, you know, it was, um, it was a neighborhood. It was the Lower East Side. People, some people, were scared to go down there. But we just hung out all day, and they were giggling. They were like, also like a couple of sisters, really, or best friends, just hanging out. And uh, you know, they had their little chains on, and they—it was very, it was very colorful and bright and fun. They said to me, "Oh, let's just stop off for a soda." So you know, we went to the deli, and they came out. They got a soda. And this kid's walking by and I took that shot and I really like it because it's just a kind of, that's a really like a moment in time shot, just the style and everything. So I guess they had a nice time hanging out with me that day and they're like, oh, we, we're gonna do a record. Do you want to be our record cover photographer? And I was like, sure. You know, back in the day, we didn't get a lot of money for doing these record covers. I mean, you know, if you've got $500, you'd be pretty happy. So I ended up doing their first record cover, then I did another one, then I did another one, and then I did that famous shot of them in those eight ball jackets, which were made by Dapper Dan, by the way, the one and only Dapper Dan. And you know, I watched them grow up. It was amazing.
3: So these images are many decades old. Uh, What are you working on now?
0: Uh, Right now, actually, I'm working on a book that is 10 decades since you mentioned decades of my photography so it starts in the punk era and it finishes with you know shoots for Levi's and Dior but it goes through punk hip-hop a lot of street photography all sorts of bikers East LA gang members on the way and uh, I'm very excited about it. it's coming out on with a publisher called Drago at the end of this year
3: and if someone wants to buy one of these hip hop images or even just see additional stuff from your work, how do they do that?
0: Um, they could go to the Fahey Klein Gallery in LA. So they obviously have an online presence and have a look. That's where you can buy all my photos. and uh, um, Or go to my website, which is JeanetteBeckman.com or follow me on Instagram, Jeanette Photo.
3: Jeanette Beckman, thank you so much for being with us today.
0: Nick, thank you for having me. I learned a lot about watches, and I honestly didn't know that half these people were wearing. I mean, who knew that Luke Skywalker was wearing the President watch? That blows my mind. That really blows my mind. <laughs> it's fabulous. Thank you so much.